Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, we were going to do a show about logic today, believe it or not. And we're still going to do a show about logic, but we've decided that we're going to do it a different way. For example, we feel like we need the rapper logic on that show. Um, But so instead, we decided to do a show about a world in which logic often does not apply. Uh, That is the world described by the great Bob Woodward uh, in his new book, Fear. Bob Woodward is 74 years old now, and uh, he's still, like, you know, driving around in the middle of the night asking people if he can come over to their house. (laughs) So uh, we're going to talk about its impact as a phenomenon, as a commercial publishing phenomenon. And we're also going to talk to people who have either completed or uh, are deep into the book. Uh, Those people are Susan Campbell, uh, the author of the upcoming Frog Hollow Stories from an American neighborhood. I used, to live in, I used to live in Frog Hollow. I was not interviewed for this book. At least I don't think so. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, uh-huh. one, you're the only person who wasn't. I lived on Zion Street for a number of years. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, cool houses there. All right. And uh, Jacques Lamar, who, is, who has endured uh, a perilous crossing of our parking lot in, the, in a downpour. In the deluge. It's really terrible uh, to get here. A playwright uh, and senior project manager at Buzz Engine. Where, although I've never entirely understood the mission of Buzz Engine, um, it feels like this is like this Woodward book would be something that you would pay Buzz Engine to try to make something like this happen, right? I was going to say it's buzzing enough on its own. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to get kind of a sense of, you know, from the perspective of the publishing world uh, where, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you do. You do try to get something like this going or sometimes it gets going all by itself. Jonathan Segura is going to join us right here at the outset. He's executive editor of Publishers Weekly. Uh, and uh, they, of course, have been trying to figure out how big a splash this book has been making. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, you're going to get us going here. Thanks for joining us on short notice. Uh, happy to be here, uh, you know, short notice or not. All right. So so give us, I mean, overall, what, I mean, Publishers Weekly obviously follows the industry, tries to figure out uh, what, what's happening, what the trends are, what the numbers are. Do you have a way of a thumbnail description of how well this book is doing right now? Um, I, I guess in a word, phenomenal um, would, would, would probably get it done. Um, you know, we, we the, the publisher, Simon Schuster, is reporting as of this morning that they've sold 750,000 copies uh, of the book through yesterday. That's, that's pre-orders on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and everything that was sold in stores yesterday. I mean, that's just an astounding number of books. Yes. And so and, and there's sort of I mean, people are now reporting not being able to get the book or, for example, our producer, Jonathan McNichol, uh, ordered the book when it fell to eighteen on eighteen dollars on Amazon. First of all, before I continue, Jonathan, is that something people do? I mean, I mean, Jonathan Segura, do they? Is it like a stock price? They watch till it falls on Amazon, and then. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are widgets that, that will like do the work for you. You know, yeah. send you alert for when uh, for when the price changes. But uh, yeah, sure, why not? Any, any anything to save a buck. Anyway, so he wrote that it was still guaranteed for delivery on pub date, uh, and then in an email he got yesterday, they said your estimated delivery date is September 26th to October 10th. So he went out and found a copy at Barnes & Noble. But, I mean, you know, when there's a scarcity of a physical book, Jonathan Segura, I mean, that, that doesn't happen that often anymore. 
No, no, it doesn't. And um, I mean, I think that speaks to, to the to the you know the hunger and that people have to to, to read this thing, because um, the publishers get an idea. That, you know, they they knew the book was going to be big. They had, I think, they had up to like a, a, a million copies in print ahead of ahead of the release, and it still wasn't enough to get people all the copies they wanted on on release date. Um, I think I think the you know they anticipated a huge demand appropriately, but I mean the, the it. The reality outstripped even even what they anticipated. And and I mean, is this? Uh, I I don't know if you can compare it to. I don't know. We, I mean, we for a long time we thought of a publishing phenomenon pretty much uh, as analogous to Harry Potter. And I certainly waited in line at the bookstore in my H.R. McMaster costume this year to see if I could get <laughs> Fear a little bit earlier. But I mean, is Jonathan? Is it that big? Is it a Harry Potter kind of big, or is that just a whole other kind of big? Yeah, I mean, I, it's. I mean, if you're talking sales-wise, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I don't think anybody has talked about anything but this book. It seems for the past week and a half, right? Um, it's all over the news. It's all over, you know, whatever he's talking about, you know, over dinner. Um, the sales numbers that the publisher released today, you know, are, are, you know, I can't remember the last time a book hit with that with that high of a number, seven hundred fifty thousand copies. Um, and you know, and and in keeping with the Harry Potter thing, I mean, a number of of uh, indie bookstores had midnight release events uh, last night, or on, on Tuesday, on the, uh, Tuesday night rather, I should say. Um, whether or not people got dressed up is, you know, their favorite, you know, cabinet members. I don't know, but you know, I mean, they they, they were selling the books at midnight. Yeah, Susan Gimble, you were Hope Hicks, right? <laughs> Say that again. You were Hope Hicks when you were waiting in line, right? Did you dress up as Hope Hicks? <laughs> no, no. I, I was Gary Kong. Okay, you can't do that hair toss to the side thing. Right, um, no. And, and so, yeah, Jacques, as long as we do have somebody here who works for something called Buzz Engine, um, I mean, one phenomenon that kind of doesn't really have, um, it's, I can't think of anything like it in history, is one of the ways that a book like this sells is to be denounced in a tweet by the president of the United States, right? If you can get Trump to tweet that you're Satan, that's actually sort of a good <laughs> career move, right, Jacques? It certainly made Susan Campbell move a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, then I must read it. Yeah, <laughs> I it's you know it's interesting because the book wasn't on my radar, and then I think that it first kind of caught my notice when they really when Woodward released the audio recording of his conversation with Trump. Where Trump basically was like, no one ever asked me, oh, well, yeah, I did know about it, but I didn't know about it. And Kellyanne Conway kind of BSs her way through that conversation. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. You know, Jonathan Segura, one of the ways that the Jacques is alluding to that, that we live in a different world these days is, you know, you have something like that. You have Woodward. He gets uh, Trump to agree to uh, allow him to record the conversation where they're basically kind of having a conversation about why Trump wasn't interviewed uh, for the book. And then there's this kind of four, other fourth wall that falls down because Kellyanne Conway's in the room and, and maybe it was sort of her job to make sure this either did or didn't happen and that we don't know whether they're who's acting at this point and who's not. And then that gets turned over to like Michael Barbaro on The Daily, you know, and a zillion people listen to that. Or I mean, in terms of promoting a book, there are an awful lot of things. I mean, if you have this kind of book with this kind of platforming, it seems like the possibilities are almost endless. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the publisher's publicity department really could have gone on vacation last week. They don't really have to do anything for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, like, it's, it's um, you know, it seemed like it was, it was you know, the, the, more, the more it was attacked, you know, the, the more the orders poured in for the thing, you know? 
So um, I, I'm curious. Like, I know Ken Starr has a book out, like, I think pretty much the same day, Jonathan. I mean, what happens in a situation like this? Does everything else just kind of get washed into the gutters? Or, or I don't know, is it is it helpful maybe to have people really interested in books in general on September 11th, 2018? Um, you know, I, I think it, it would be it would be a tough I wouldn't want to have my book published on the same day as, as Fear. I'll put it that way. Um, I mean, the the Star book is is sort of an interesting case because it's you know it's it's you know, it's published by a conservative imprint, you know, and it's Ken Starr's memoir of of his time as independent counsel when when he was investigating the Clintons in the mid '90s. So it's speaking to you know a very different audience than the Woodward uh, is likely to do. Um, but I think publicity wise, you know, the book everybody's talking about and going to be talking about, you know. Unfortunate for every other book publishing this week is is uh, Woodward's. Right. So Susan, I don't. Know, was Frog Hollow stories from an American neighborhood? Was that scheduled to come out this week? And you guys just said it to... was. We pushed it back, <laughs> and I've included information about the Trump White House because I would like to sell the book. Right. And also, I can provide you a, a tape of you and me talking about why I'm not in the book. Uh, <laughs> and, um, if you, know, you think that would help, I will totally. I, I think we live in a time when you, you pretty much have to try anything. So, well, yeah, can I ahead. ask a, yeah. a quick question uh, just in terms of then, you know, how does a book like this have legs beyond the first week? Good question, Jonathan. Um, you know, well, I guess, you know, one, one thing that will help out is that, you know, people who ordered it are still waiting to get their copies. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, technically it will keep selling for a while. Um, you know, you look, you, know, you look at um, like Fire and Fury that happened earlier, you know, uh, earlier this year. Um, I mean, that one started strong, and it, and it sold for a while. And I, I think that, um, you know, it, I mean, it's, it sold something like, uh, I think we're close to a million copies in print, uh, print copies sold for that one. Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of it will depend, too. I mean, first of all, it, it almost seems as though we're moving towards the movie model where, you know, your opening weekend is kind of everything. Uh, but, but I also think this book probably has enough granular detail so that it, we, we're not going to talk it out, right? I mean, if we talk about it today and it gets talked on and all the Sunday talk shows last weekend and next weekend, there's still going to be an awful lot, I would think, Jonathan, there for people to, you know, to sort of sift through. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's going to be, you know, obviously a lot of stuff that was reported already are, are the big, big marquee headlines out of it, you know, the administrative coup d'etat, stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, this, this, you know, this is a, it's not a short book. There's a lot in there that hasn't been talked about yet, uh, that, you know, either, you know, it will be stories to come or, you know, people are gonna have to read the book to get, to, to get a sense of it themselves. Um, and I mean, we, we posted our review of it today, um, at Publishers Weekly. And one of the, you know, one of the things that was, you know, I had, I hadn't heard of prior to, you know, seeing a review come through was that, you know, it, it's not all, a damning portrait there you know he there are some positive things said in it as well um you know about about uh trump's relationship uh, the president's relationship with the first lady for instance um which you know that was that was news to me in, in terms of something that was in the book that hadn't been reported on yet right i i, I agree that there's a lot of lot that hasn't been reported and i'm not all the way through the book by any means all right we're going to take a break here thanks very much to jonathan segura uh, the executive editor of publishers weekly uh great to have you on a show like this one Thank you, of course. Great to be here. And we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to really talk uh, to Jacques and Susan, and maybe to you guys, too, if you're reading the book right now, 860-275-7266. Jim Chapdelaine has just started it. He's tweeting at us, don't tell me how it ends. Please tell me how it ends. A lot of spoilers. Fear that love ain't living here no more. I'm talking fear. Fear that is wickedness or weakness. 
fear. Whatever it is, both is distinctive. Fear. What happens on Earth stays on Earth. And I can't... All right, we're back. We're talking about the Bob Woodward book, Fear, in the studio with me and uh, constantly applying a blow dryer to various parts of his body. He's very wet. Uh, something he does anyway, but uh, this time <laughs> it's just because he's soaked from the rain. Uh, Jacques Lamar, a playwright uh, and a senior project manager at Buzz Engine. I should say Jacques Lamar, the playwright. I think that's better than Jacques Lamar, a playwright, right? Jacques uh, Lamar, the playwright. Yeah. You know, I think that seems. Uh, it's like Portugal, the man. <laughs> It's exactly like that. Uh, Susan Campbell is uh, the author of the upcoming A Frog Hollow, Stories from an American Neighborhood, which will be published as soon as there aren't any big blockbuster books being published. Um, So pre-order right now. I better go on Amazon and see if the price is falling. Apparently that's a thing people do. Um, So, so, okay, uh, Susan, I'm going to start with you. I I guess you already mentioned to us that you've finished it, and apparently Dumbledore dies in this one too, which I think is... You know, it's just kind of piling things on. Um, you know, I, 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 it's no secret anybody who has read your Twitter feed or has read your Facebook page knows that you are not merely not a fan of President Trump, but I mean, I think you're probably on his enemies. I can't stand his inside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, what was your motivation? Like, what did you want this book to be? I guess that's my first question. Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I read Fire and Fury. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I did. I'm tacky. Um, and I'm not equating the two books. I know Jonathan mentioned it, and I'm sure he didn't mean that they're similar books other than they're covering the Trump White House. I think what I wanted to see is if there was some humanity there that I'm missing mm-hmm. in the Trump White House. Um, if maybe I'm wrong about some of the conclusions I've drawn. So I, I opened it with the hope that maybe I'm wrong on some things. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, if that's, yeah, it makes sense. If that if that's truly, I mean, you were sort of hoping to find more humanity than you've seen? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I mean, who wants to be right about what I feel about the current president of the United States? We all suffer if I'm right. If people who really can't stand his insides are correct in their suppositions, then that's a problem. And so I was, I was reading the book, and, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say and I don't mean this as a disparaging remark, there's not new information, there's just more detailed information in this book. Do you think that's true, Jacques? Do you think I, that's I, true? I want to have, hear both of you on that. Before I hear Jacques on this, let me quickly say uh, you can okay. call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266 if you're reading the book. Um, probably don't call in if you're not reading the book. Um, <laughs> Um, I, actually, I know that my former WTIC co- uh, colleague, uh, Diane Smith, has now started the book as of, I think, last night. So maybe she'll call it. 860-275-7266. So what about that, Jacques? I, I know from your email part of what you think about whether there's anything new for you so far. Um, you know, I, I agree with Susan. I didn't open it expecting to, you know, find um, find a more human side to the people who are are in the Trump administration, but there are glimpses of it, even with mm-hmm. with Trump, um, particularly when they're talking uh, about him dealing with uh, the families who have lost someone in uh, in action, and they say how he's he was actually really good with the families um, for the most part, and then you know he's a total jerk face in the next scene uh, in the book, but um, you know it. I, I also read Fire and Fury, and it's 
the the content of this book, there's a lot more policy in this book, mm-hmm. um, and I Definitely. say that in a in a good way, um, and that you know you you do kind of wade through some of those portions to be like, all right, let's wait until Trump explodes again or does you know <laughs> does something completely baffling, but um, you know I mean the thing is you you turn to books like this and Fire and Fury to kind of um, I think wallow a bit in the salaciousness that you that you get teased in advance when these books come out and and the book delivers in those regards but it's a lot smarter than than a uh, fire and fury i do want to say one thing about the um calls to the grieving families because i mean there can't be anything hilarious about calls to grieving military families but there is sort of a weird Trump thing about this, which is that, as Jacques says, he's depicted as being really, really good at this. But what he does is he says, you know, I have reports here saying what a wonderful guy he was. He (laughs) He just starts making up all this stuff. What a good person he was. Everyone liked him. And those are that's absolutely not included. You know what? He was trying to make the family feel better. Yeah. That's what I yeah. think too. That 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 everything he does at times, which reveal him, reveals him to be a charlatan about some important things. It's a skill set he deploys in all kinds of situations, and <laughs> in this case, you know, Jacques, as Susan is suggesting, maybe he deploys it in a way that's actually, you know, I mean, if he were a different kind of person, we'd be thinking, what a wonderful guy! He's making up terrific stories about this soldier for the family. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to I want to make the argument that there is stuff in there that. I didn't know anyway, and maybe I, just, I I don't know which things are things that are new and which things are just things that I didn't know. For example, Jacques, you know, the when we get to the, we should say, first of all, that this book, which I didn't understand until I started the book, it doesn't start in his presidency. It starts during his campaign. In a way, it starts like six years before or five years before his campaign when they're first starting to kick around some ideas about him running. But so when we get to the point of the infamous Access Hollywood tape, one thing that I didn't understand was how pretty much, according to this book, everybody around him except Steve Bannon was saying, you're done. You're yeah. done. You're, you are out. Reince Priebus, uh, Kellyanne Conway, everybody, they've got Pence lined up. They've got Condi Rice lined up as running mate. And except for Bannon, everybody is saying this, Chris Christie, everybody is saying this is over. I mean, I don't know. Did that come as a surprise? That that did the 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 Pence and Condi Rice thing. I was like, oh wow, I had no idea. And you know, but I mean, I think it's um, sadly a, a testament to the fact that he's like a tick that we can't get rid of. Uh, you know, is that he gets counted out over and over again for things that would have you know debilitated uh, you know a lesser candidate or something. Um, you know, he just would bounce back from. You know, like saying the things that he said about John McCain. It's like, oh, you can't say that. You can't say that. It's like, well, he just keeps on trucking, and and uh, and so there there are little bits like that. For me, one of the one of the big surprises, and there are only little little appearances by her is uh, is Melania Trump, and uh, you know, I, I'm trying to remember who refers to her as the hammer. You know, like. Right. That you know she's kind of tougher than she seems, mm-hmm. and that there's more affection between the two of them than we realize. Uh, and so it it makes me, of course, really long for a book about their relationship. Right. So and you're all the way through it, Susan. I take it that Melania stuff continues, right? Not much. Yeah. Um, there's not a, and and you know when you read it like I did, I I will go back to it because I don't think I gave it enough. Uh, attention. They're not a great deal. I, I, 
there is that put out there that they are more affectionate than they appear. Uh, they have independent lives. I don't know if you're at that point. I feel like I'm giving spoilers out. Well, I, um, no, I think it's hard to give spoilers out. I mean, I think there's just okay. so much. No, I mean, I, I'm saying don't worry about it. Um, okay. I mean, first of all, this is the presidency, and second of all, there's so much in this book. I mean, you can tell yeah. ten more stories. You're not going to really wreck the book. It's exhaustive. I think about what must have gone into all the interviews and even keeping the notes straight. It is exhaustive to read. When I got to the end, of my, I read it on my Kindle. Suddenly there's a picture, and I'm thinking, wait, it's over? I have 30 more minutes to read. <laughs> and if you keep thumbing through, if you have the Kindle um, uh, version, it's that's every bit as fascinating. Skip the acknowledgement, but the rest of it's really interesting, like how he did what he did. Right. Well, we're going to talk a bit about that, I think, right now, because Peter has a question about it. I just I'll do one thing that one more thing that amazed me about the whole Access Hollywood thing. So the other thing that is revealed is that. So if you remember, that broke on a Friday, and so it turns out mm-hmm. nobody, nobody anywhere on his inner circle with one exception, is willing to go on the Sunday talk shows and, and defend this or talk about it or anything. Everybody Giuliani. says, nope, 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 I'm not doing it, nope. And so Rudy Giuliani goes on. He does what they call the full Ginsburg, which means you yeah. go on all the all five major Sunday morning talk shows. He's like just exhausted and battered and bleeding by the end of it. I think his last one is with Jake Tapper, who's like tearing into him. And he goes back to the White House, and, and there's a bunch of people sitting in a room, yep. Trump and a bunch of other people sitting in a room, and Trump looks at him and says, Rudy? You're a baby. You did a terrible job of defending me. Why can't I get Rip him a new one? Yeah, <laughs> tells him he needs a new. Someone should change his diaper. Yeah, yeah. He was like, you got changed. They changed your diaper in public. It was just done. And he stands there. This is what infuriated me throughout this book. Slap him. Say something back. Good lord. Right. I mean, it is the way that he treats people. The people who are the most loyal to him is kind of astonishing. All right, let's yep. go to uh, Peter in Hartford. Our number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Hi, Peter. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Uh, hi, Susan. There's a l- oh, this is question. this Peter. <laughs> oh no, the <laughs> Prince of Darkness. It is the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> it's, a question. it's a question for both of you. Um, some of the criticism of Woodward's book which I don't necessarily agree with, is, is um, uh, the attribution process and whether or not as reporters you think um, this could have been published as a, you know, in a, in a legitimate newspaper with, without the attributions and the process of his writing the book. It's an important book, but I was just wondering about um, his way of putting together maybe seven quotes that may make his point. Mm-hmm without yeah. necessarily touching base with the source itself. All right, so before we have either Susan or I answer, Jacques, you brought this up, I think, also in the emails. Like the way, what struck you about the form of attribution? Well, um, I, well, there's virtually no attribution. And, you know, he, he acknowledges that, uh, you know, these sources have spoken to him under the condition of anonymity. And, uh, and so there's, it makes for... Kind of, uh, you know, very. It almost reads like, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's fake. It almost reads like fiction because there's a lot of dialogue that you just, you're he like, wasn't there. he wasn't there, and you you kind of wonder, oh, how do they know he's, you know, he said, um, oh, whatever. And so there, and there are certain conversations like there's one I believe between Trump and Kellyanne Conway that. Uh, that was just the two of them. 
Mm-hmm. And so you're you're kind of wondering, you're left to wonder, how did he get this content? And I don't think he's making it up, mm-hmm. but you know, you know that Kellyanne Conway is not a leaker. I, you know, I know I don't I don't know that at all. Oh, see, I just kind of hope she is. I, I assume that she was the source on that. I mean, the, one of the rules that I apply here is if somebody is being depicted as a genius or a person who like really had the right answer in, in a situation, I assume they are the source of that story. Because, first of all, in this particular milieu, I mean, it is like Game of Thrones or something. I mean, everybody's just kind of out for themselves. I don't think there's a whole lot of you know cohesion there. So she... She tells us in the thing that Jacques is talking about, and I won't do the details of it, but she paints a very accurate picture of how the future could go under certain circumstances. And Susan, yeah. I-, I assume that she is the source. Of I do that. too. Um, but yeah, then, like, I how do. can she show up for work? You know, it, oh please, <laughs> come on, Mary. You right. Know how she, she gets a fat paycheck. I yeah. Like no, no, but I mean, her. but no, I mean, chances are he's not going to read the book because. Because he doesn't have the attention span of a housefly, right? Uh, but you know, it, someone's going to tell him. Well, and the thing is, it's very interesting that the reviews that I read of the book um, today. I started listening to it yesterday on Audible, and then when I realized I needed to talk about it on the radio, I increased the speed of the listening mm. to like <laughs> one point three. Yeah. Um, so it was like being read to by Alvin and the Chipmunks, but it was. Uh, you know, a lot of it was a lot of these reviews were like clearly Cone, Porter, Priebus, um, Bannon, Bannon, I, Bannon's got to be a source on this. Yeah, I mean, he, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. And you know, they're they're all of course playing the I no, I didn't say anything. I didn't. I'm not a source or what have you. But I would I would be surprised if Kellyanne Conway. Well, the other thing about this is, look, if she were a source. If she were clearly the source of Trump being an idiot or Trump being, you know, caught doing something ignoble or something like that, that's one thing. But the story that we're all talking about is just her getting something right. And yeah. if, right. It, it, Donald Trump, I think, completely being the master of self marketing that he has been for decades, would understand why you would, you know, if you were talking to Bob Woodward, and he knows she talked to Bob Woodward. We know that from that goofy phone call that he recorded yeah. where where he says, where Woodward and Trump and Kellyanne Conway is standing in the room, and, and Woodward goes, Kellyanne, you're standing right there. We went out to lunch. We had a whole lunch talking about this. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he knows that they've talked, and the idea that she yeah. would tell him a self-serving story might just as well excite the admiration. This is true. This is true. <laughs> um, can we talk about Peter's question? Because I think it's a really good one. Right. Not that I... Yes. Okay, I'm talk, sorry. Talk. So in my common law class just this morning, we talked about confidential sources and the contract you're signing with a source as a journalist if you say, I will keep it confidential. And we d- discussed how rare confidential sources, um, uh, anonymous sources should be, because it does call into question the reputation of the writer or the journalist. And so most journalists use anonymous sources very rarely because it's too easy for to lead people down a path. Did she make this up or did he make this up? I think in the case of Bob, Bob Woodward with his incredible reputation, he may be among 
and correct me if you think it's a different number, three people who can get away with this kind of work with this many unnamed sources. The well, rest he, of us... Yeah, he invented this, I mean, back in 1976 when the yeah. Final Days came. Final Days is the first book that he wrote that way. He, all the President, yeah. President's Men is not written that way. But Final Days, which was kind of the sequel to All the President's Men, was written very much that way with these conversations, direct quotes recreated mm-hmm. there in ways that are essentially impossible, you know, and it's now basically something, it's almost accepted as... You know, a motif, uh, a Bob Woodward book is going to have that. So you can get used to it or you can hate it or you can reject it. But that's how he rolls. I think one of the things that's interesting, though, or 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 challenging now are the you know, I think with the timing of the New York Times anonymous op ed and all of, you know, the fact that we all now use the term fake news that um that not having your uh, information sourced suddenly casts it in a different light. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd be happy to extend that conversation a little bit more. I do have some thoughts about it. But one of our other journalism colleagues, uh, somebody I mentioned before, who's also reading the book, Diane Smith, is also on the phone right now. So uh, let's get her into the conversation. Hi, Diane. Hi, Colin. I want to finish the book this morning, except... I'm listening to the book in the car, and I had to listen to Wheelhouse, so I didn't have that extra hour. Yes, so it's, to it's so kind I'm of our. F- I have one hour okay, left. that's sucking up. Right. Hi, Diane. So, so Diane, I don't know. In a nutshell, how are you? Uh, do you want to comment on this whole idea of how it's sourced? You know, how those direct quotes uh, land for you? that if it were any other journalist other than Bob Woodward, mm-hmm. I might have a big, bigger problem with it. But I think because Bob Woodward has been sort of an icon of uh, journalism in our generation, that I'm willing to buy it from him. I believe him when he says that he's sourced these things many times, that he has tapes, that he's gone over them. Um, I think one of the, the New York Times said something about, uh, you know, he actually sources them to death. Um, make it so boring. And I, I guess I would accept it from him, whereas I didn't accept it so much with the earlier books that were written because I thought, these people don't have this kind of, they don't have these kind yeah. of credentials. All right. Um, you, I have a problem with that. So I'm going to oh, I'm going to yeah, I, I want to go to a break here uh just so we'll have a little bit of time on the other side. I'm going to have the producers check in see if we can make the phones sound a little bit better here too. Our number by the way if you want to call in 860-275-7266 860-275-7266. Before we go out, can I just make one point which is I think what happens a lot in journalism is the journalists say they're not going to use anonymous sources anymore or they're going to, you know, they're going to have a new policy or whatever, and then they don't. You know, I, mean, I think ultimately anonymous sources get used more than we journalists want to admit. I just, I will quickly recount on the day that um, the New York Times did the page one story about uh, Dick Blumenthal and his Vietnam service. I was on the uh, uh, Brian Lehrer show in New York with Ray Hernandez, the guy who wrote that book. And I said, uh, wrote that article. And I said, how did you get this material? How did you get like tapes uh, who fed this to you? Who, how did you get tapes of Blumenthal speaking? And he said, oh, well, I'm not going to tell you that. And I said, why, why aren't you going to tell me that? And he, and he goes, well, why do I have to? And I'm thinking, because Bill Keller made a big speech after the Jason Blair stuff about how you guys weren't going to use anonymous sources anymore. And it's actually part of the story if the Linda McMahon campaign is spoon feeding this stuff to you. I, I think in general, we, we make a lot of nice speeches about anonymous sources and then we go back to them. Anyway, let's uh, take a break and then we'll come back. 
McPants sat on a gold brocade couch in the host's office. Jonathan, the host raged. You're a baby. Why do I let you produce this show? Who can produce this show since I'm so smart and I have the best words? Amanda Fish, a decorated four-fin fish with ramrod posture, pulled the host aside. Mr. Host, I can see that you have the most smartness. If you let me produce this show, then we'll abrogate our treaty with the Fujmus and invade them and take their food and their wine. The host looked puzzled. What does abrogate mean? It doesn't matter. Get me Ryan's Priebus. Tell him he's playing the part of Bill Curry. Down the hall, in a darkened office, Betsy Kaplan sat alone, her shoulders shaking as she wept. She had produced a show about the fundamental nature of color for the next episode, but it didn't matter. They would all be dead by then. And now, back to Colin. All right. We are doing a show tomorrow about the fundamental nature of color uh, and the way in which blue and red and purple and yellow, these are kind of almost social constructs more than they are definable things. Anyway, we'll explain that to you tomorrow, assuming we're all still alive. I quickly, while I have the floor, also want to say, Coming this weekend. Okay, so if you didn't get tickets to Hamilton in Hartford, uh, you should know that it's CT Improv, which is spelled C like the ocean, T like the hot drink, uh, improv. Uh, they're going to have this grouping that comes in from New York, and they kind of do an improv hip-hop musical based on, I think, almost anything the crowd yells out. Also there at CT Improv on Asylum Street in Hartford this weekend, uh, Kion Wolf is going to do her Saturday night show asking for a friend or Saturday night advice show. I believe that's at 7, and then at 9 p.m., about when once a year, I appear with CT Improv in a format called Chatterbox, which is a combination of me doing improvised stand-up and them doing improv based on my stand-up. And, uh, and I swear a lot and I say a lot of disgusting things, so don't bring your kids. It's 9 o'clock anyway. Leave your kids home. It's 9 o'clock. Anyway, all those things are happening this weekend, and I just thought, you know, maybe you should know about it. Uh, all right, so um, we are talking uh, about the book Fear. Uh, we are talking with Jacques Lamar the playwright and senior project manager manager at Buzz Engine. Susan Campbell is the author of the upcoming Frog Hollow Stories from an American Neighborhood. Also on the phone with us is legendary Connecticut journalist uh, Diane Smith. Uh, so well, we got uh, lots of um, voices here. Um, so I'm going to ask all of you, Susan, I'll start with you because you are all the way through it. Did anybody come out of this a little better in your eyes? Anybody that you sort of had a hardened off opinion about? Uh, did anybody sort of emerge a, a little bit more sympathetic to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the author of the author of Dating Jesus now rejects the notion of redemption. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't reject the notion of redemption. But um, other than a few bit players whom I'd only read about briefly, and the news had really formed an opinion about necessarily. Um, they were fleshed out for me, but no, I can't say I came away thinking, oh, let's go get a beer for anyone. Okay, so Dating Jesus didn't work out. How about the uh, former seminarian over here? Uh, you know, I, I in reading the reviews, they, they do say if you if you are evidently a source of Bob Woodward's, you get treated uh, with a certain amount of deference in his books. And so there are certain players that, certain, that, that seem to... Um, to get uh, a nicer treatment than others uh, in the book. But I think, you know, the the overwhelming feeling is that a lot of these people like Rex Tillerson and Mattis, uh, you know, are um, constantly working to try and keep this out of control individual under some degree of control. And that to me was, was interesting because um, we always get a sense of, 
everything just being completely out of control and malevolent in the in the White House and 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 the administration. So to me, I I felt like there was uh, some leavening going on that that was interesting. Right. There's also that uh, we're always kind of running our thumb down the knife's edge of that question, right? Like if you really think things are that bad, come tell the public we have a problem here. You know, go to go to Congress, you know, and say, hi, I'm Jim Mattis. There's something we have to tell you. We're in a lot of trouble right now. You're going to instead of like whispering things to Bob Woodward and running around. And I'm, but I mean, I think either kind of conduct is, is theoretically discussable anyway. So, Diane mm-hmm. Smith, what about you? Did you have a anybody emerge as, I don't know, a little bit better? I don't. I don't know if there was anybody that I felt better about, but I felt maybe worse for them. Mm -hmm. I felt really sorry for some of the people that he insults right to their face (laughs) with other people in the room. I mean, we've all heard of insulting everybody from Jeff Sessions to, you know, members of Congress, but... You know, Steve Mnuchin, who I don't have much use for on any level, um, he had already been offered and accepted uh, his job at Treasury, and now he's in a room with Gary Cohen, and he offers it to him. Yeah, Trump's, and the guy's right there. No, he, he, says, he doesn't just offer it to him. He goes, I, the, I, had a te- I picked the wrong person for Treasury. Yes, yes. <laughs> and he said, you know, you worked for me for a year. Why didn't you tell me about, you know, these bonds that we can do? What's wrong with you? And, you know, then there's a time when, and again, I have no love lost for Rudy Giuliani, but after Rudy is like the upstanding soldier and goes on every one of the Sunday talk shows and defends, you know, him after the, uh, the tapes came out, um, the, he says, Rudy, you're weak. You have no business being on TV. You're weak. You're... I thought, really? You know, I just can't believe that he insults people to their face in front of colleagues and other people. I thought it was awful. And I, I thought that he gives much more credit to, I give much more credit now to Steve Bannon for his election than I previously had, uh, hearing how Bannon rejected so many of the other ideas that the more conventional people trying to run the campaign, like Reince Priebus, uh how he rejected all their ideas and just went on his own, I have even more fear of what he was able to do to get the president elected. Right. I, I do want to say Steve Salhani used to do this stuff to us, you know, like you know, to our <laughs> stream minutes to our faces. Seriously, if yeah. you were in a work environment, have, have any of you ever just sat there while someone talked to you like that? That is just, I can't even. Mm. <laughs> If if any of my bosses you mean you mean, bes- you mean besides you screaming at me? Yeah, not me screaming, but having you tell me, you whiner, okay. I, I find that not that I find it hard to believe, but I find it hard to to sit still and read when Donald Trump goes off on someone, says horrible things to them, and then there's no rejoinder. Right. Well, I often didn't talk back either because I was afraid of you. You were afraid. Okay. Yeah. It's fear. It's fear. Yeah, that's what they call the book fear. Well, let me just let me let me say one thing that I think all three of you will probably object to, but that'll be good. So I was one of the few people when David Remnick had invited Bannon to be kind of a headliner or maybe the headliner at the New Yorker Festival. My reaction was, well, first of all, David Remnick, I think, is maybe – close to being first among modern American journalists. And so if he thinks this is worth doing, then I want to see why he thinks it's worth doing. I started there. But in this book, and let's let's posit, let's stipulate that Bannon appears to have been the source of an awful lot of material about Bannon. And Bannon, therefore, depicts himself as an unparalleled genius, genius with, with tremendous foresight. Let me just stipulate all this. If, if it's true 
that he took he came in he was brought into with the Mercer family brings him into the campaign Trump is down like 12 to 16 points in some of the polls and Bannon says I can see how this can work this is how it's going to work he's going to win you know this is the, this is the architecture of the campaign this is the emotional and psychological substructure of the campaign and then that's exactly how it happens uh, whereas pretty much most of us in the journalism business, and I certainly include myself both as a journalist and someone who was teaching a class about this stuff at the time, assured everybody we knew that it was going to be a Democratic blowout on Election Day. You know, I mean, if it's not true that Bannon kind of saw that stuff that far off, I really do want to know what, <laughs> what Steve Bannon <laughs> thinks about stuff. I mean, if he's really that smart. All right, go ahead, Jacques. You can respond. Oh, why don't I get to respond to that? All right. I, uh, I, because I'm scared of letting Susan respond. Yeah. <laughs> but you know she's already got an opinion on yeah, deck. Yeah. Let me, give me a moment to, to form your All right, Susan, you go first. Um, I think because, as Jacques said earlier, because I think Bannon was a source for this book, uh, a huge source for this book, that I read much of this with a grain of salt. And I, I don't give him as much credit, perhaps, as uh, others in this conversation do. Um, for being the political genius that he gives himself credit for. Yeah. Did that give you enough time, Jacques? Well, actually, uh, yeah. Diane can go next, and then Jacques can uh, have okay. a fully formulated yeah, opinion. You know, yeah. I, I don't know if I buy the fact that he's a political genius. I agree that he's mm-hmm. a big source in the book, and clearly he paints uh, a very you know, beautiful, fabricated picture of himself. But what <laughs> I do think he understood uh, better than anybody else was the Trump personality and what he could do with that and how all of the conventional tactics for winning campaigns weren't going to work with this and that there was a path, as he called it, you know, as we said so many times, a path to victory, but it had nothing to do with conventional campaigns. In that way, I thought he was smart, and I do think that that might be true because the commentary seems so legitimate. Uh, you know, when Reince Priebus is trying to get him to cash in his chips and, you know, pull out and all that. And I remember that weekend when all of those, uh, after those tapes there, and all of the big support uh, donors, Republican donors, were supposedly, supposedly pulling out their support. And Bannon was like, fine, you know, we're just going to double down on this and keep going. Um, and I think that's where he's a scary genius. And as far as David Remnick, I certainly think we need to hear what Bannon says. I mean, I would, I would have been, you know, buying a ticket and listening. Um, how would you, how do you not know, or how could you go through the next several years without knowing how he got this man to the presidency? Right. Okay, Jacques. Now. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's clear he's he was heavily sourced uh, or uses a source for the, for Fire and Fury as well. So he's he's getting his narrative out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, without having to actually sit down and, and self-glorify, so he's he's brilliant in positioning that. And I think with with Trump, um, you know, Bannon in a way that Trump didn't had his or you know, maybe Trump did, but had his finger on what that base needed to hear, and he distilled the message down into a sim- simple enough talking points that Trump could easily get that stuff across. And I think um, fo- giving Trump that focus and saying, this is what these voters need to hear right now is what you know put Trump in the White House largely. And so I think um, you, there's no understating his importance to Trump's campaign and why Trump's in the White House. I think in terms of having him speak at that New Yorker event, I am a bit conflicted 
because Bannon is such a reprehensible individual um, on issues pertaining to race and mm-hmm. misogyny and whatnot. So I think it's sort of, you know, when you have someone problematic like him, you do have to say, all right, are the pros going to outweigh the cons? Okay, if you're out there listening and you're anywhere uh, in the middle of this book, Fear by Rob, uh, Bob Woodward, uh, you can give us a call. We're running out of time, but we have time for a call or two. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So, you know, one of the things that, that, that I still don't entirely understand but know that I need to understand, and, and it's contained in a lot of the conversation we were just having in the last six or seven, six or seven minutes, is why— why this happened, why people, why 65 or 63 million people uh, voted for Donald Trump, why somebody who seemed so wildly inappropriate to me and, and to the other people on the show right now seemed very appropriate to them. And I think it's it gets a little less mysterious every day. But Susan, you're all the way through this book, so I'm going to lean on you a little bit here. You know, it seems to me that a, a lot of this book is about – uh, some about a group of people who decide, and Bannon in particular, uh, but a whole bunch of other people who decide, first of all, in Bannon's case and some other cases, this guy is an interesting candidate in a way that nobody's ever been an interesting candidate. He doesn't talk like a politician. He doesn't think like a politician. And I can mold him into my burn the whole thing down model because he also doesn't have any core principles. So I can just give him his principles, you know, and, and, and he'll like that. And, and the, I guess the question that I have is, I'm assuming that by the end of this book, to Woodward, it seems a little bit like a Frankenstein story, you know, that they made a monster that even they can't completely control. I don't, I don't know if you want to react to that. Um, I didn't get that impression at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. It's just, to me, it was more the same. Like someone on social media said, I hear there's a real, you know, I'm not getting the right word, but there's something really interesting on the last part of the book. And I've, Uh, the last page, and I thought, no. (laughs) I don't know that they look at him as a monster. Yeah, I I mean, I'm wondering also, like, how you... How do you think Woodward looks? I mean, I, I'm assuming Woodward at this at the, by the end of the book. I haven't finished it. I just heard Woodward uh, being interviewed on the Daily. My sense was that he feels as though that this might, you know, whatever kind of interesting experiment this might have been at the beginning. It's not interesting anymore. Yeah, yeah that that we are in a crisis, and and we if we think otherwise, then we're deluded. That was my impression from the whole book. You know, to me, though, you know, in terms of the Frankenstein analogy or metaphor, you'll have to f- tell me which one it is. Uh, it, you know, is it seemed like the the monster was already built. It was just how they were going to direct it. Yeah. And so, you know, there, um, you know, because there, there's no controlling Trump, but he wasn't their creation. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and so I think that's that's one of the things of you know he just kind of drags people along with him and and the book is really uh, largely these people trying to build you know walls <laughs> to contain him right but you know then he just gets on his phone and tweets and everything implodes and so I think that it's um, you know it's interesting to see how the Republican Party. Uh, as we as we head into the midterms and and uh, much to Susan's horror may have to look at him being around for 2020 um, <laughs> you know that uh you know how how uh, this out of control this person who's still out of control 
um, still has no discipline, um, how they're going to position him going into these elections. Let me grab one really, really quick call from Frank in Weathersfield. We're almost out of time here. But, Frank, yeah, go ahead. Listen, about the anonymity issue, both in the New York Times and Woodward, it's really red herring. Had anyone identified themselves, they would be the subject, not the not the, the matter that's being written. Mm-hmm. And the proof of that is that no one has done anything about Trump so far. And they're not going to do it because someone writes a letter or a book. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, I, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. It just it doesn't matter whether people are anonymous? Not under these circumstances, no. Because they're... Their identification of themselves is simply going to turn the whole thing around from the content of what they're saying to who is talking. Oh, that's an interesting point, that, that it then becomes about, about them instead of about their content. I don't know, Susan, both you and I certainly have negotiated with people over the years. You know, will you say this on the record? Can I say that? How, mm-hmm. how can I attribute this to? And I'm not really sure, you know, their motives vary a lot. I, to me, it like, seems like every case is a little bit different. You mean as far as people who want anonymity? Yeah, and and why, and yeah, how much they're willing I, to? Yeah, go ahead. Maybe the over, maybe overall they they want protection from something, and by being anonymous, they can share this information, and not just like the whistleblowing situations, but just people who don't want to be in the paper or don't want to be on television by name. Um, that, but that's an interesting comment, that, and that's absolutely true, I think. Well, yeah. look at how much ink has been spilled over who wrote that New York Times exactly. anonymous we got, essay. we got to wrap it up right now. Thanks so much sure. to Susan Campbell. Her Frog Hollow book is coming out as soon as there's no blockbuster. Watch for the next play by Jacques Lamar, the playwright, also from Buzz Engine. And also, could somebody just pick him up at the door and drive him back to work because it's, it's too wet for him to walk to his car? 